Welcome everybody to the second episode of uh, our podcast and everything IR. Today we're going to be talking about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, because you know there's been a peace deal that's been signed just a couple of weeks ago of a new escalation of the conflict and today here there's me Mateo uh, we also have Suspin, Aditi and Remus who will be all talking about this and uh, I think it's important to start maybe with some historical background of the conflict um, to try and understand that and give some context as well. Um, so Nagorno-Karabakh is this region within Azerbaijan, which uh, when Stalin was uh, ruling, so this was the beginning of, of the, uh, during the 1920s anyway, uh, this region was carved out basically because both Armenia and Azerbaijan were part of the USSR. Both countries and peoples lived together quite peacefully. But the main biggest conflict started in 1988 and then finished in 1994. And this was, you know, the, the years when the, the Soviet Union was falling and, you know, they became autonomous countries. Um, among the years, there's been lots of conflict. Different countries have tried to negotiate peace deals as, as well. And, uh, you know, lately in this uh, 2020, there's been the latest escalation, which lasted for six weeks started on September 27th and finished on uh, November the 9th. Maybe it's a good place to start by looking at the latest developments of this peace deal in the last uh, kind of days of conflict. And um, what is this peace deal meant? So yeah, I think um, with the peace deal that was signed, um, it's very much left Armenia um, weakened. And there, there was a lot of public anger, uh, protests. I, I believe protesters kind of, um, you know, seized or kind of ransacked the parliament. And there was a lot of outcry because, so Armenia um, lost uh, some of the kind of, well, Nagorno-Karabakh, some of the land had been taken by Azerbaijan and surrounding areas. And um, as part of the peace treaty, uh, Armenian troops had to kind of fall back. Um, and yeah, it's quite humiliating, I suppose. But it left a lot of kind of room for Russia to step in as well as the kind of peacekeeper um, and kind of just secure access uh, in Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and it's, it's interesting to kind of see the peace deal in like a wider context of like kind of other states in the area. So Turkey, Russia, um, by having that military presence then, in the region, it does uh, show hand towards, um, you know, Erdogan. Yeah, I mean, it is quite an international, it's very interesting to look at the geopolitics of it, because it's uh, within the broader context of, of say, um, power, you know, power relations of Turkey, Russia, Iran, as you were saying. In Russia, I think is probably uh, most important here, because as we said, the conflict started under the, the USSR, and then, you know, they've been the major kind of uh, negotiators of peace. And even in this case, uh, Putin was, you know, this statement came out quite out of the blue. No, not many people were expecting it. And uh, Putin, you know, helped negotiate the deal, uh, which many say is actually a deal that favours Azerbaijan. That's why there was a lot of like, I guess, upheaval in Armenia, um, because it's given lots of territories, I guess, to Azerbaijan. The, the ones that they've conquered over the last six weeks. What do you guys think of that, of the, you know, what the, the peace deal is like? What do you think that's going to, you know, end the, 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 the conflict? Or is it just, you know, another 
moment of peace which will continue because tensions you know seems to still be quite high i think it's really difficult to actually say at the moment especially with the current politics going on in armenia there has been calls for the president to resign he's been called a traitor and there's a lot of divisive kind of internal politics so i think kind of the attitudes in armenia might change depending on kind of who comes into power later on but armenia has been kind of a russian ally for quite a while um and it's a part of the kremlin dominated security and economic structure and it's quite integral in it the reason kind of russia wants this peace deal to go forward is because they see Azerbaijan as important and they also want to integrate this country within the same uh kremlin dominated security economic structure so i think russia has a want to kind of preserve it but you know there is so much kind of internal disrest within armenia it's so difficult to say at the moment I think, I think, from my own opinion, I, I believe, and I strongly believe that that this is <clears throat> this peace agreement is a mitigating factor. Now, um, this conflict has been going on for 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 many years now, and I I foresee that that this peace agreement is is not going to bought it will bought well for the short term, but I don't think it's a long term um, approach. And with every peace agreement, you know, there's always a saying that that peace is costly. So with regard to to these peace agreement, I believe that there's always losers and and, and winners. And like what Aditi mentioned, I think Russia stands a lot to gain from this particular peace peace deal. One main reason is that I think it's it's very interesting to take a step back and look from a, a wider perspective where um, Russia is being threatened. Russia's regional hegemon is being threatened by the emergence of Turkey. You know, strongman uh, Recep Erdogan is, is there to, you know, challenge Russia a little bit. And I think with this particular peace deal, um, like what Aditi mentioned, it does Russia a lot of favours in the sense that it con- it controls the corridor um, whereby trade, lots of trades flow through. And I think uh, it sort of uh, kept Turkey out of the peace agreement as well. So in, in this aspect, I see Tur- uh, Russia stand to gain a lot from this. And... Um, and yeah, I think with regard like what Aditi mentioned as well, there's a lot of uh, uh, internal turmoil happening in, in in Armenia, and I foresee that um, in time to come, so when five years later, when the peace agreement elapsed, or even ten years later, when when the peace agreement elapsed, um, conflict may may happen again. You know, so this could be a short term thing and not so much a a long term thing. Yeah, because at the end of the day, right, this conflict is over. You know, the uh, Nagorno Karabakh. Like, I, I don't see anything as part of this peace treaty that kind of addresses the the root of the conflict. Like, so um, Azerbaijan has seized area um, and forced Armenia back at the end of the day. Like, there isn't a solid political um, framework there. This is purely like a military victory. Um, and in time, that can always change. So and until there is a you know a real political solution, yeah, this conflict likely will reemerge later on. Um, even well, obviously the Russian presence there is to deter the potential for conflict, but um, you know at the same time that leaves Armenia in an extremely weak position where they're uh, so reliant on Russian presence there. I think what's once what's interesting is that with regard to the most recent peace uh, treaty. Um, and one of the nine points, in fact, specifically uh, on the seventh point, it specifically mentioned that internally displaced people shall return to the area under the guidance of UNHCR staff. 
So Armenians are still allowed to return back to, to this contested region. And I believe that, you know, personally, I don't think that they will go back without a fight. You know, may not be in the current, current few years, but subsequently when they build up the, its military capability and stuff like that, things will, bought, things, things will just you know, accumulate and then one day it might just explode all over again. So yeah, I definitely agree with, with Saspin. You know, this peace treaty is a mitigating factor. It doesn't really set out the political solution about which state it's supposed to take. And then, yeah, it, it just stops short of coming to a common consensus. Yeah, because it doesn't seem like, you know, it kind of, nobody's like really happy with it. No, you know, none of the both sides anyway, because the Armenians have obviously uh, clearly not happy with it. You know, they, they protest in parliament uh, and in the capital um, because obviously they lost territories compared to what the, the, the start of this conflict. And obviously Azeris also still believe that, that you know, the whole territory is theirs. So it's only, it seems like a momentary thing, a momentary thing. And so I would agree there, um, you know, and I think uh, Pashinyan, who is the president of Armenia, he had said at the time that he, he had to, to, to sign the peace deal because, you know, troops were slowly, uh, Azerbaijani troops uh, were slowly uh, advancing and were going to take the, the capital, which is Stefanenkart. Uh, and so to avoid that from happening and to, 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 to lose further territories, he decided to uh, sign this deal. And uh, I think it's also interesting the position of Russia in all of this because um, just geopolitically speaking, we often see the United States as a mediator for peace um, deals anyway, uh, or at least uh, at what it seems, you know, when we talk about the latest relations between Israel and Bahrain, Israel and Sudan um, uh, as the, part of the Abraham Accords. Or, or even, uh, you know, the, the fact that now they have this deal with the Taliban. Um, so it's very interesting to see Putin, you know, on the screen, uh, putting together a deal between uh, two other countries. I think it shows even how Russia is still like an important player when it comes to geopolitics. I was just going to add really quickly to your point, Matteo, it's going to be really interesting to see if the neutral players that were kind of mentioned within this conflict stay neutral, especially Iran and Israel. Um, because, well, Iran in several articles has been kind of mentioned as a neutral player, one who's actually offered to mediate this conflict. But now, um, you know, they're going to be kind of neck to neck with Azerbaijan in a way, because their territories will be kind of more overlapping. And there's been reports um, from 2012, actually, that uh, Israel has kind of military cooperation with um, Azerbaijan and there's been claims that this can actually mean that Israel can use Azerbaijan's airfield in the event it decides to attack Iran. And kind of the proximity um, and kind of, you know, close alliance that Azerbaijan has established with Israel is probably really big concern going forward for Iran, especially, you know, with the new development that happened, what, yesterday of uh, Israeli soldiers killing Iran's top nuclear um, director. Yeah, that's it's a crazy story. Sorry, I guess it's going to be a bit of a tangent, but I I, uh, I listened to it on the radio earlier today, and I believe it was a spokesperson for the United States, but um, he spoke like on the topic of the killing, and she uh, was saying how it kind of like the killing painted um, Iranian security forces in like a negative light, like they prevented to stop this attack, which I I just thought was unreal. Um, just like the framing of it, 
you know yeah like they kind of like tacitly are saying it's okay they could have gone ahead with it it's their fault for not having you know enough security which is something else and the israel position i think the israel position is quite interesting because this is one of the main reasons i started looking into the conflict a lot because i was i was questioning like why is israel involved in this conflict because they were supplying armaments to azerbaijan and it's like i didn't really get you know the connection there because why would they be supporting azerbaijan and as you said aditi one of the main reasons that it's uh you know they border iran azerbaijan borders iran and they have military bases there um, but there's also a very um interesting thing uh, when we look at it economically because uh, apparently Israel uh, gets 40% of its oil and gas from Azerbaijan. And this pipeline, which uh, uh, supplies them, actually has to go through Turkey. So it goes over uh, Armenia, I think, into Georgia, and then to Turkey and down to, to Israel. And so, you know, once you start looking at all these things, it, you know, things start to make more sense when it comes to alliances. Um, so that, that was very interesting. Even because uh, you know Turkey and Israel might not seem to have the best relationships, and then on this they're like together, right? Actually, it's really interesting. There was concerns coming from Russia, and kind of um, well, kind of concerns from Iran and Russia. I think both that Azerbaijan was kind of westernizing. Um, when NATO was trying to go into Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan was the main route that was kind of used to go into the region and out of the region as when Pakistan kind of pulled out and it's kind of increasingly moved um, to position itself, I think kind of against Iran in ways and against Russia as Russia's kind of an ally to Armenia. So in kind of a broader conflict or in a kind of broader view, there's question of if Azerbaijan is actually starting to become a key ally to the EU and for kind of Western powers. Um, and how this actually benefits Israel and very certain allies. I think it's especially interesting looking at some of the conflicts it's had with Iran, because I don't think they're highlighted enough. They had a resource dispute with Azerbaijan, I think sometime in the early 2000s, over territorial water. Um, there were gas deposits found in the Caspian Sea and there were kind of, you know, conflicts over who actually owned that. And then, the only reason it kind of didn't escalate is because they remained, Azerbaijan kind of remained neutral or tried to, you know, remain neutral towards Iran because they needed uh, access to the Azeri enclave of Nachivan, uh, which was only possible by going through kind of Iran. And I don't know if that's actually the case anymore. So yeah, there's just a lot of kind of changes in the way Azerbaijan can kind of uh align itself because i don't think it needs to make these compromises so much anymore yeah and staying on kind of the topic of israel what do you guys think about the um kind of comparison that maybe can be made between this the, the nagorno karabakh conflict and the israel-palestine conflict because uh, we're talking about two territories that uh, when it comes to like ethnically speaking the people there in nagorno karabakh have always been uh, Armenian and even when Stalin drew the borders it's like 90% Armenians um, and, and kind of similar is the case of Palestine and then you know these jurisdictions of new states were put upon these territories so I think there's quite an interesting uh, comparison that can be made there. I really didn't realize fully um, before looking into this um, like the role of the um, USSR 
um, I was I was just doing some readings and sort of like kind of like to get like a post-colonial lens. Um, and this being like just looking at the relationship uh, of the region, but in terms of the colonizer and the colonized. Having said that, it, under Soviet uh, control, like Nagorno-Karabakh was its own, uh, I believe, like autonomous region. And yeah, like I think you mentioned earlier, Mateo, things were largely stable. I believe there were still kind of flare-ups and like um, clashes, yeah, even under Soviet rule. But um, yeah, it was really in like kind of the final days of the Union when like it was breaking apart that things really flowed up again. Um, and I was, I was watching a documentary on this uh, and it really looked at like the, the role of like the actual people in the region. It was a very first-hand account. And it seemed like what the people wanted and what the authorities did to manage the situation were totally at uh, opposite ends because uh, from what I recall, um, the people wanted like a political uh, deal to be made for the Nagorno-Karabakh to be kind of officially recognized as Armenian. But um, the Soviet authorities at the time, they uh, largely ignored those claims. I, I believe they didn't want um, to upset Azerbaijan um, and they wanted to obviously maintain the union. So they kind of looked at other ways to um, stem the problems, but they overlooked the most, what I think is the crucial aspect of it, which is the social um, relations that kind of these people uh, demanded. They, they wanted their land. And yeah, it's just interesting to look at that. And it's also another one of those conflicts that can be like brought back to like its roots are like uh, strictly related to like colonialism, you know, the same way that many conflicts are in uh, say the Middle East or in Africa and things like that in post-colonial, um, you know, times now. It's uh, usually one of the main root causes of, of so many different uh, wars that are going on at the moment. I think just one thing that's interesting is kind of Azerbaijan uh, has been kind of steadfast in supporting Palestine, which is really interesting considering its relationship with Israel. The way it's often described is as kind of support at equal levels, but in kind of a situation like that, it's really, you know, interesting how that can be maintained. Um, and there's also been kind of Palestinian support of Azerbaijan within kind of this conflict of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So I don't know, I think it's like, it's such an odd kind of situation. I think like managing that kind of relationship with Israel um, is so difficult for so many other countries because you don't really see this kind of joint support for Palestine and Israel almost ever. Um, and being able to do it for such a long time. I think I think this is a certainly very very interesting. We, we we touched on a lot of a lot of topics, and I think with regard to to what Aditi mentioned, the relations with Israel is is certainly a very very contentious one. Um, but then again, that being said, I think very recently in, in the last two years, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described Azerbaijan as um, an Arab brother, in a sense that like. The, they're, they're friendly, they're on friendly terms. And Azerbaijan and Israel recently 
I think let me check again. Uh, Israel and Azerbaijan actually established relations back in 1992, and there's an embassy ever since, uh, open since 1993. So with regard to that, I think the relations between the Israelis and the uh, Azeris has been on a more cordial note. Whereas that being said, that can't be said of the same uh, with regard to uh, Israel and Armenia. But I was just wondering, what do you guys think, or at least how far do you guys think that the reason Armenia lost this conflict is not so much of the lack of support from Russia, but more due to its military incompetency? Knowing that, that in the past 10 years, uh, uh, Azri Armed Forces has um, has gotten 60% of 60% of its armed forces coming from, from Israeli defense contractors. You know, in, in the most recent Nagorno Karabakh, you know, uh, Azri Air Force uses the Havoc, the Havoc drones, Havoc drones, yeah, from, from the IAF, from Israeli armed forces. So the question is, how far do you guys think that uh, where Armenia is today is because of its military incompetence or its unwillingness to, you know, not put funds at a within its defense. What do you guys think? Um, I wouldn't fully know about whether it was army in like incompetence as in it was their own fault. I mean, perhaps it was because they failed to modernize in the same way Azerbaijan did. But um, it's a really good, like, yeah, Azerbaijan had a massive kind of uh, military uh, technological advantage, especially like looking into it, I didn't even fully realize they had these kind of weapons, but uh, the the Harrop drones that you mentioned, they're these like autonomous um, uh, drones that can like they will hang around in the air waiting for the target and then they strike and that was incredible in a very scary way. I didn't realize we had that technology, but um, it's there and they were using it to very good effect. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a really good kind of thing point to make. Yeah, I mean, Azerbaijan's just when the conflict started, uh, it's like they've just been militarily very superior to Armenia just because they've had a lot of backing as well from Turkey and Israel, for example. Like, they Turkey was even sending mercenaries, I believe, from Syria to uh, Azerbaijan to fight in this latest six weeks. And uh, and so, from that side, you know, they had the advantage and uh. Uh, although I, I, from what I've heard, Armenia has a really good um, like uh, technological sector, uh, sector sorry. Uh, but the fact that is that the, the the state itself has not been very good in managing uh, investments and like where uh, to focus its investments. Basically, you know, heard people from Armenia as well saying, uh, you know, many have been angry with Pashinyan, but also. Uh, you know, others have said that it's not Pashinyan himself, but people he surrounded himself with in his government, and uh, and therefore the decisions that they've they've made. No, but but we're free. Sorry, sorry, did sorry. You go ahead. I think it, yeah, it also goes back to kind of their allies and their the steadfastness of their support, because Turkey and Israel have kind of been unwavering allies for Azerbaijan, whereas Russia has kind of played both sides. They've you know uh, kind of had arms contracts with both Armenia and Azerbaijan kind of supported both of them through the conflict in different capacities. I think within that it's I think um, it's been said kind of multiple times that Azerbaijan would never attack Russia directly or something that kind of it thought Russia had a really big stake in but Russia never really indicated that with Armenia in the way I think that you know like Turkey and Israel kind of almost pledged themselves for in um, Azerbaijan. Also, I'd like to point out that 
between the years of 2009 and 2018, it was found that Azerbaijan's military spending was almost 24 billion, where Armenia's was 4 billion. Like there is just a like spending difference. Um, and I think that has kind of multiple, multiple kind of facets also going to like, you know, the technology available and kind of like what they wanted to invest in because um, it was, I think in 2012, there was a $1.6 billion deal for provision of unmanned aerial vehicles and satellites uh, with Israel. And I think kind of Armenia wasn't really in alliance with them. So this type of technology wasn't really what they were, you know, uh, given access to and given access to buy. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, very interesting indeed. So with, with regard to, to, to this, all right, um, no, I think the, the tale of Armenia is, is very, very interesting, apart from, from its external relations. Um, the rest of the world might want to take a leaf out of this, out of this, you know, this whole debacle, this whole event. Firstly, with regard to, now this is more catered to a realist perspective from a, from a, a, a more security point of view, all right? First point is that the collapse of Armenia is, is twofold. First of all, uh, it's like what Aditi mentioned, there's a drastic spending difference. But then again, not to forget, in, in 20, 15 years ago, Armenia was way ahead of Azerbaijan in terms of military spending, in terms of military might and military technology. Come 2010, if I'm not wrong, Azerbaijan's spending and military skyrocketed. That's where it found an ally in Turkey, found an ally in Israel. And like what I previously mentioned, 60% of its, its armament comes from Israel with the Harup drone and like what has been mentioned. So this is this is this highlights in point that you know defense spending till till today in a contemporary climax uh, is still very much important. With regard to the second point, I think it's very important where you know uh, with regard to contentious region, be it North Korea, be it Israel, Palestine you can't really rely 100% on security dilemma. Uh, sorry, on the security umbrella. <laughs> that was the wrong term, sorry about that. So yeah, I think with regard to security umbrella, you can't really rely on that because Armenia was a little bit, in my opinion, right, was a little bit overconfident because Armenia has a defense treaty with, with Russia. And Russia was very reluctant to, you know, uh, to step in to, to defend Armenia because if it would defend Armenia and launch a counterattack, um, it risks joining in Turkey, and Turkey is a, is a NATO ally, and that would join the whole Europe, you know. So I think all stakeholders are very, uh, are quite unwilling to, you know, partake in, a, in, a, in an all-out blow. That being said, within this security umbrella, you can look at it on the other side, on the, on the Azerbaijan side, whereby, you know, Israel, Turkey has always been uh, on, on Azerbaijan side, and to good effect, whereas Russia has not been, you know, of that much of help to Armenians, to the Armenians, so, you know, security umbrella may not be something that that states may want to put all its eggs in its basket. You know, countries like Korea, Japan, for example, may not want to fully trust, um, you know, Western allies, for example, in the Korean Peninsula and stuff like that. So definitely, I think states around the world should take this Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict as, 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 as a good lesson, you know, a, a good unfortunate lesson, I would say. But, but yeah. Um, kind of like, Touching on that, yeah, um, like when you when you're saying about how other states might look at this, um, for sure, like especially when you consider like lack of, because um, typically you might expect the United States to 
um, have a more important and prominent role in negotiating and mediating, but it, it's Russia this time around. That obviously it's it's you know Russia's backyard, so to speak. But at the same time, I think we've you know uh, America was quite wrapped up in its own domestic politics at the time. Uh, still is, but I think that um, almost you know shrinking and folding back of uh, American presence internationally, it does you know it should lead states to question whether they can just how far they can rely on American support in the future. I think with regard to what Sashmini mentioned, I think the Minsk process. Um, one of the major one of the major partners within this region conflict, you know, I think back in uh, 1980s and 1990s, um, was the U.S. Uh, of course, relevant stakeholders and with France as well. But I believe uh, in this current, in the most current conflict, France didn't really have a very active role. Same goes for the U.S. But then again, U.S. is predominantly tied down with its own uh, domestic uh, politics. But yeah, France France um, has been on the sidelines ever since. So yeah, I think within the US, there was uh, a quote I found by Thomas Ambrugio, uh, and he basically said that the US supported Azerbaijan's territorial integrity, but enacted policies that effectively supported Armenia's irredentist policies. So I think there was kind of a divide within the US as well as to how to handle this conflict um, and kind of where it really stood in terms of supporting one side over the other. Um, and I think that's kind of the case for a lot of the countries that were on the sidelines. And you can kind of see that time and time again, um, because the EU it was kind of largely, you know, missing or absent kind of from this crisis, you can say. And it's, I don't think like, I don't think it's completely a loss to them the way it's turned out because they have interest in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan actually supplies 9% of their oil and gas and it's kind of a mitigating factor to Russia's influence within the region because Russia also supplies kind of a large oil and gas um, percentage to the EU. But the fact that they kind of weren't very active during it is interesting. And I think it points to, you know, uh, maybe A, the divisive nature of kind of how to handle colonialism or post-colonialism within the EU and then also really how they want to handle a crisis that Russia is already involved in. Um, but I think it does just show that, you know, you can't really rely on all these powers that uh, dominate the region in a way, because I think they're already handling very touchy kind of politics on their own. This one, I think, is a particularly, it's a very delicate uh, situation because there's many powers involved which have, like, even... I don't know, certain alliances and then kind of contradictions to do those alliances in the same way, at the same time, sorry. Uh, like even, I think Turkey, for example, is a perfect example of that where uh, we've seen like uh, tensions rise uh, with uh, France at the moment, but Turkey's always been, is a NATO ally uh, and in the past was uh, also like, like buying uh, defense missiles from Russia. And so Turkey is kind of this uh, wild card, I think, in, in some way that nobody really, like everybody wants to have on their side because they have a really uh, important position uh, geopolitically uh, as well. But at the same time, 
um, they kind of act in certain ways that nobody seems to like like much. Uh, also, I, I haven't heard much from uh, NATO or the EU, to be honest, except except for France, uh, which I think also goes to so to, to you know how it's um, a delicate situation. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's also important to mention probably um, further the role of Russia because other than mediating the peace deal, they've also like sent actual troops in uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh region to uh, help with the um, peace pro process. Um, so I think they've sent uh, some troops to uh, look over the Lachin passage, which is basically connects Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia uh, so that people can move safely there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The, it's also interesting, I think, the, the, the position of Russia because uh, uh, the, the mediators and I think that kind of... Um, I see it as a kind of uh, they haven't committed to one side or the other, even if like historically, I guess, uh, the more uh, allied with Armenia, but the division between the different sides also helps with their uh, broader geopolitical goals of hegemony in, in the region the same way. Maybe Stalin, many argue, was the reason that Stalin created Nagorno-Karabakh at the beginning was to like kind of divide and conquer um, agenda, you know. I think it's really kind of highlighted at this point um, by looking at how they're not really allowing Turkey to be peacekeepers because Azerbaijan, I think, recognized that Turkish forces would serve as peacekeepers within this conflict. And it was kind of completely denied uh, by Russia and the Kremlin. Um, and obviously, if you have two peacekeepers, you're kind of splitting that power because being a peacekeeper does in itself offer like power stance, I think. Yeah, just but looking at... Oh, sorry. No, no, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. The tension between Russia and Turkey uh, that's been ongoing for a while now, since uh, since Syria, really. Just within this like crisis and kind of the idea of maybe moving forward with it, it's like the same kind of questions you ask. In my head, I think sometimes when I'm looking at kind of like Kashmir, really, where where does it stop? Like, where does this crisis kind of move on? How do you kind of progress with it? And, you know, how much do you have to engage with kind of the colonial past to really understand how it started and where it's going to go? Because I think, you know, I'm seeing a lot of articles with kind of quotes saying, you know, we were once neighbours, I hope we could be neighbours again, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem possible. You see these same quotes emerging in like Kashmir. Um, and it's just, it's this kind of conflict that's, kind of questionable how divisive it is with all these you know different politics pulling people apart further and further and further that it just it seems like do you have to question colonialism at its core or do you have to question the proxy like proxy warness kind of at its core or what do you have to look at to actually understand how to kind of bridge these divides yeah and do you um, I don't know, do you guys have anything else to add? Because I was going to ask you a question about like, what do you think might be the best way to like kind of um, solve this this problem? You know, what uh, if like a, a peace deal is going to do it at some point or if it's just going to be resolved over resolved, I guess, but like over over conflict? That, that's a good one, Matthew. Um, no, that's a really tough question. Like, that's of a course, really tough no, question. I don't, think there's like, <laughs> I don't think there's an answer to that because obviously we would have come up with it already, right? But, exactly, exactly. Just yeah. like how the, the Israel-Palestinian conflict has always been ongoing for the past few decades, you know. Uh, this conflict, Nagorno-Karabakh, 
unfortunately may have the potential to you know stretch into to the next few decades hopefully not hopefully not um but in in my opinion um of course i'm in no capacity to give any advice but i would really like to see um less of strongman rhetoric more towards you know um multilateralism you know dialogue rather than you know fist fights rather than you know boots on the ground blood on the floor stuff like that so I would really like to appeal to all stakeholders to remain cognizant of, of the threat of you know war warfare. Um, war doesn't do, doesn't do them any good, you know. So I would, for me personally, I, I'm I'm a strong proponent of multilateralism, um, constant dialogue and and mediation. You know, then again, I don't have a I don't have a solution. So uh, <laughs> hopefully, in, in the next few years, there would be a, a more sensible solution. But yeah, this is this is just something that I, I thought it would be good for for either stakeholders to you know take note of. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the independence of uh, uh, Nagorno Karabakh, you know, because uh, they, it's officially recognized by the the UN. I think it was in nineteen ninety two as part of Azerbaijan, and then you know you've got all the countries who are part of that who then recognize it as such, and so to go back on that would be really really hard we have france who lately uh, just a few days ago i think the senate voted to recognize azerbaijan uh, sorry uh, nagorno karabakh as its independent uh, country but uh, obviously that's from the senate but it will have to go up to the government and i i doubt it's going to be you know it'll go further but if that was the case then it'd be very interesting imagine france taking a stance where they recognize independence of armenia then what would that mean for for with the other european countries i guess I think with regard to, to what I mentioned, Matthew, and if I may, I think as recent as, as 2019, when Pashinyan visited uh, one of the cities in Nagorno Karabakh, uh, he was trying to, you know, rouse the sentiment of, of um, reunification. So that, that was very recently when he just won an election in 2018. And in 2019, when he was in the region, he was rousing the, the public, you know, for unification. I think this is what that galvanized the Azuri's reaction today. That could be one of the reasons, you know, that that the root cause of, of what we have witnessed over the past six weeks is actually because of what happened in 2019. With regard to, you know, um, the front one, I think it's, it, it's a rather contentious one. That again is, is, is the Senate. So hopefully, you know, we would see solutions in the next few months, in the next few weeks. I think just one thing that's kind of important to recognize within this crisis is that all the people, that it is a very recent crisis, you know, people have kind of been displaced multiple times within a very short period of time. Um, and that's never easy. I think like, again, it reminds me of Kashmir because it hasn't really been that long. We like to kind of believe it's been a while and, you know, it would cool down. It, doesn't really work like that you still have a lot of people who call this place their home on both sides and you can say you know a few decades will pass but that kind of connection kind of remains i think there has to be multilateralism lateralism uh, ladder there <laughs> there has to be multilateral okay can someone say it? sorry multilateralism right yes thank you um because otherwise you're going to kind of continuously see different groups of people displaced and kind of being told they can't claim the land when it depends on how you decide to see that but their claim is you know legitimate in their own terms 
And I think that kind of has to exist to really stop the bitterness of the conflict, because I think the bitterness of the conflict isn't really from like the strongman politics, it's the fact that there's connections to this land in a very like, you know, uh, long lasting way that both sides have had. This wasn't kind of a part of either country for a really long time. People lived there as neighbors for the longest time. And then there was, you know, divisiveness. It wasn't kind of, you know, this land makes you this or that. It was when this region wasn't recognized and kind of was divided that this all started. So kind of without putting an end to that and without recognizing that, you know, people can claim heritage to this land, can claim connection um, in a very legitimate way you're going to continuously have this conflict because I think that's the root of kind of how colonialism kind of plays out still today. You know, you have people saying, no, this is my land, this is my heritage, this is my history, and not recognizing that doesn't solve the conflict. I think recognizing it and then moving forward is really the only solution I see. I think that's a very good answer by uh, our um uh do you guys have anything else to add to the conversation any points or i think just one thing i found really interesting is when talking about this crisis it's often talked about a way that's very impersonal it's about talking about you know russia winning or the eu losing or win for israel but not really of any of the people involved not about kind of the countless deaths not about kind of the you know uh, hundreds and thousands of people being displaced because this conflict I think in you know, IR lens is often about the geopolitics more than anything uh, and kind of on an international stage and I think that's part of the reason people disconnect from these types of things over time because it seems very political it's like oh one strong man will win one strong man will lose this always happens and I think there needs to be a shift away from that but it's kind of I've seen this whenever you're even talking about Palestine you're talking about you know uh the ties between israel and the us and things like this but you don't really get this idea of how devastating it is and that's just something i found like when i was researching it i think i if, if i may add as well i think to i think you brought about uh, a very very important point i think in in international relations a lot of then again in my opinion uh international relations a lot of a lot of solution you know obstacles or, or you know blocks are being you know one are being or can be attributed to the idea of, of a zero-sum game now what did he mention you know oh there, there will always be a winner and there will always be a loser but that's not how the world works you know the, the, there's more than just a zero-sum game you know and i think if if you know strongman politics can be put aside multilateralism has greater emphasis you know people, leaders should, you know, be more aware that zero-sum uh, game is not the way to go. And then for, hopefully, we would definitely see a lot more solutions to, you know, not just this conflict, but to many other conflicts around the world. I'd just like to plug the documentary I watched. It's called Parts of a Circle, History of the Karabakh Conflict. I think it's uh, amazing, really, um, because it really uh, tells the real first-hand perspective of the people that lived in the area and how they were affected. And you can hear quite horrifying stories of just brutal violence between, you know, two peoples over this land. And I think uh, often when you hear about distant conflict in the news that you might not be aware of, you'll hear the country's name um, and that's all you'll think of. You'll, you'll think of that country um, 
but it, it, you kind of think of it as a black box, so to speak, as in you hear the, the state, but you won't really recognize like what's in it, like the actual people that make up the state, you would just think of the countries and it becomes just the conflict you hear on the news. Um, it's really worth looking into to actually understand uh, more so the history behind it. It's worth yeah. a watch. Absolutely. The history is like imperative if you want to understand what's going on today. All right. With that being said, I think we're going to wrap it up. And uh, so, yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode.